Hello and welcome to Gun Creation. Today I have a mathematician and also I would say a bit of a theologian. He has several degrees. And Professor Wilson, I think it would be beneficial if you could talk about your education avenue or your different degrees and your career path and how your career path in general, if you could speak on that. Sure, Tyler. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be on your podcast. Let's see. So I started college in 1992, and I, I came from a home that found Christ in a divorce, and there was a lot of rockiness. So I heard the gospel growing up, but had my doubts and questions based on a secular humanist background. And so it was in college where I wanted to get that sorted out. So I came in with uh, with a little bit of uh, talent in the area of math, and I figured that I, I love to teach, and so maybe maybe being a high school math teacher might be cool. And but in that search, I, I wound up going to Biola University, and mm-hmm. they offered a biblical studies and theology major as well. And the Lord really got a hold of of my heart and my attention that first year of college. And I I really became just fascinated with with the reality of God. And I began to question kind of living for myself and, and just setting my own agenda, my own goals versus a broader purpose in life. And so so in in that vein, then I I looked at a math major, math degree, and I thought, wow, it'd be much more meaningful to study the theology and the Bible. And so I, I took on a second degree of biblical studies and theology. I almost gave up the math degree because it was hard to do both. But girlfriend, family, I, I no one approved of my chucking the math major. <laughs> yeah. I went ahead and, and, and took it. I didn't feel like my theological training was done, so I continued on to seminary, got a master's of arts in New Testament studies. I was for a PhD in that area when the Lord did a series of supernatural events in my life because I had a hard head and I didn't listen the first time. And Eventually, I got the message and I switched off of that, that PhD path. And I went and got a master's of arts in applied math. And what I basically heard from God was, I appreciate the zeal, son, but I want you to go back into math. So I I got a master's and I was planning on stopping there, but I wound up getting a a one-year appointment at actually at Biola again. And they recommended I consider a PhD and not just settle for a master's and and teach at community college, which was my plan. Okay. And so I prayed about it, wrestled over that one. And I I eventually wound up getting a PhD in statistics and that finished that in 2008. And so, so that's kind of the, the quick version. Yeah. Yeah. um, That's great. I think I've said in every episode how, science and faith don't really counteract each other, but they can both just strengthen each other. And I, I just love just your path, your career path and your studies. And I really think mathematics is 
the most beautiful, but also the most underappreciated science. There's a quote I found in an economist article called Proof and Beauty. And one of the things it says is that mathematics is beautiful, even if it is, sadly, more inaccessible than any other form of art. And I just love that because I wanted to get you on the show to really talk about how it is art and just the beauty in mathematics. Because a lot of people, when they hear mathematicians use um, words like beautiful and beautiful equations and all these really strange terms for math, it's strange to most people to use those terms in a math sense. But this episode, I would love to talk about the beauty in mathematics. And maybe we could talk about mathematicians in the past, because recently I found out for the first time how Pythagoras, he got into kind of like a spiritual thing, just out of the beauty of art. And it's kind of the wrong path, but I'm just intrigued that there has to be such beauty in mathematics that Pythagoras would come start almost a religion that mostly focuses on math. So if you could speak on the beauty in mathematics. Sure. Thank you. You know, Pythagoras really is a great place to to start even because you're right. He he was a pioneer and he didn't have some tradition that he had to live up to or some kind of norms, but he was just going with things as he was seeing it, so to speak. And mm-hmm. he he did form a bit of a a, a cult not not necessarily in a pejorative or negative sense, just a, a sect of people that had a particular belief system. And, and they wound up going, going closed, like you had to enter in order to, to gain their further teaching. Center, they had a lot of mathematics, very much in the area of geometry. Most people listening have probably heard of the Pythagorean theorem. Um, so that's, that's a real real thing. He was the one who discovered initially the mathematics behind music. Interesting. Not musically inclined, but but he discovered that if if you hold a you know a string at, at, at certain intervals and then and then you you press it down and then, and then pluck, that you get these different chords. And so he laid out the mathematics behind that and he reasoned from that that if the this mathematics that's abstract that I can just you know think in my mind or maybe scratch out on uh, on the beach, uh, that abstract thing has a physical manifestation that that I can literally hear with my ears, and the other people also hear it with their ears, and we affirm it. And he found there this unity between the the abstract and the physical, right there. And so, speaking of beauty, I want to point out there's two uh, distinct categories of beauty that we have here. One, there's just the beauty of the mathematics itself, all the abstract stuff. And that's, that's phenomenal, I think. But there's another category that people maybe don't tend to think about as much. And that is that all that abstract stuff, it has its perfect correspondent in the real world. In other words, the universe was created to, to connect there, it's like a hand fitting into a glove. The physical world matches the non-physical world. And so as soon as you take that, then you've got to ask, okay, so what worldview is going to explain this? And if you go down a secular worldview without God and design, 
it doesn't explain that phenomenon well. If you go down theistic worldview, then now we can explain that. And, and of course, my particular uh, view of Christianity explains that quite well, our God. So I think those two categories are one place I'd like to start. Okay. As you go down, I mean, people tend to think in math and in the beauty in math. There's a lot of phenomenon that are simply, uh, simply beautiful. Even if you take that, that Pythagorean theorem that we mentioned, uh, why is it that if you have a, a right triangle, which one of them has a corner, a 90 degree angle, one of the angles, and then if you take the square of one side, square the other side, it equals the square of the third long side. That holds everywhere in the universe at all times for all triangles. Now, when I say triangles, I'm referring to a triangle that, that's inside of a plane. Okay. So the fact that, that that holds and that we can prove that is itself a pretty remarkable thing. And then there's all kinds of amazing mathematical phenomenon that, that I think probably have a, a greater wow factor than the Pythagorean theorem that are themselves very beautiful. Those occur in not only geometry, but in algebra and in calculus and other uh, a little bit more advanced areas of, of mathematics. So just like the artist who maybe does a lot of painting, looking at other people's paintings or whatever medium they're using, they traffic in beauty, so to speak. They're looking at beautiful things in order to then create their next piece. In the same way, mathematicians traffic in beauty because we use not only these, these amazing results, but we prove those results. And when you go about constructing a proof, uh, mathematicians are drawn to types of proof that are going to have properties towards beauty. For example, we look for elegance, simplicity, clarity, things like this in our proofs. And if you have two different proofs for the same thing next to each other, we judge them according to these kinds of aesthetic criteria. As to mm -hmm. Does it elucidate the concepts well? Okay, then that, that becomes a virtue. And, and if it does, and, and you can get it to a certain point, then that becomes a very beautiful proof. Whereas one... Maybe it gets the job done, but it's really long and clunky. And, and we even use language like that. It's a bit of an ugly proof or it, it's uninteresting. It's not beautiful. <laughs> does, does that make sense? Yes. So, so we've, we've talked about the, the, the fit between the physical and the abstract. We've talked about a lot of phenomenon in, in just the, the pure abstract. And then I talked about uh, beauty in proof which is a form of abstract, but connects with the results. Um, if I move over to the, that connection between the physical and non-physical, then I think that there's a great beauty there because it points to something. Why is it that way? I think it points to a designer. For example, if you look at the, the laws of physics, okay, well, the laws of physics are such that the, the world 
is a particular way. And mm. to change things, uh, for example, if you were to change the distance of the earth from the sun, uh, you make it a little bit closer and we're going to heat up and fry. You put a little bit further away, we're going to freeze. Okay. You change the distance of the moon from the earth, it, it, it's going to mess up rotational issues. And there's all kinds of, of physical phenomenon in the world that had to be just so. And I find a beauty there because it, it points to something beyond itself. I think it points to a designer. And so there's, there's books written, for example, the, the Privileged Planet by Guillermo Gonzalez. It's about this kind of thing. And so that, that's another one, another kind of avenue for beauty. So I've been speaking for a while here. We could go in more depth, but I think that lays out some major categories uh, of beauty that I see. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I love that. You wrote an article, looks like it was in 2012, called The Laws of Nature and the Natural versus Spiritual Mind. If you could talk about that article and what that's about. I love Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God is invisible attributes. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. And I just love that, the natural laws um, in creation. If you could go into depth about that. Yeah. So the, Romans one twenty really is the theme verse of that article in a lot of ways. And so it, it, it says that, that God's invisible attributes. So first of all, they're invisible. We can't see them. And that's likened unto that abstract part of math. Uh, they've been clearly seen through what has been made. Now, the, the clearly seen with our eyeballs through what has been made, things that we can feel of the material world, that's that two parts in the categorization that I laid out at the beginning. So God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen through what has been made. It says the invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature. So these are things about him. And then at the end, it says, so that they are without excuse. So it is testifying to everyone who beholds this in nature that, that God made it. And so it's, it's to draw people to him. So I think that's, that's just what we're discussing. And so in the paper, the, the, the macro theme is that this invisible nature that created the world is the same nature that is not only manifested and we can see and get insight from it, but through the work of God, through Jesus Christ, his son, dying and atoning for our sins and, and giving us new life in him, that new life in him includes his very nature that created the world coming to dwell inside of us. Now, for those who are not Christians and familiar with the Bible, that is, a, I think, a phenomenal, a radical, probably even offensive claim. Mm -hmm. um, but yet that is what the Bible teaches. And so, so that's, that's the thread that I pull, pull through the article. And so I start off by, by showing a group of thinkers that recognize the nature of God in the world, but are not Christians. And so, so I, I have a quotation from Euclid and some ancient 
Greeks, and then I move up into modern times like Albert Einstein. And just historically, a lot of thinkers have, have recognized that there's something there with this ancient, the ancient, with the, the math and, and the world. And one thing that I, that I like to show my students is I show them a clip from the TV series called Numbers. And it's a secular show, but the tagline in the clip is math is more than just logic. It's rationality. It's using your mind to solve the greatest mysteries that we know. Well, that's an acknowledgement of this thing that I'm talking about in Romans 120. And so I start there and then I move into the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there are some, some passages in, in Jeremiah. Let's see, it, it's in Jeremiah 31 that basically says, this is God speaking to his people, Israel, that as surely as the sun comes up every day, so sure is my love for you. And in that, that saying, it, it says the ordinances of the world in the sun coming up every day. And the word ordinance is the same word that's used in the, the legal language there in the Old Testament. In short, it's natural law. You have, even in the Old Testament before Jesus, the establishment of this natural law that God has put laws into the world. And so, so we got the secular mind, and then I move into uh, the, the Old Testament mindset, and, and I, I tease out a few other things there. And then I move into the New Testament, and there, there's a verse. I'm going to go ahead and look, look this one up. Uh, it's, it's in 2 Peter chapter 1, and he's talking about the divine nature. Mm. It's verse 4. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And so that's part of the new life that we receive in God is to become a partaker of the divine nature, literally dwelling within us. And so we started with Romans 1.20, God made the world by his divine nature. And we end in First Peter one, uh, sorry, Second Peter one four, where the divine nature actually comes to indwell us. This is not a pantheistic, we're becoming the God of the universe type of thinking, but it it, it it's a it's a subordination in that He created us and we're under Him, but He actually is is so intimate with us as as to even dwell inside of us. Interesting. Another verse that I verse that I love that you put in that article is Job 38, 31 through 33, which says, Can you bind the change of the Pleiades or loose the cords of the Orion? Can you lead forth the constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the statutes of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Could you talk about what context you, that you um, use that in and just also what you think of it in general? Yeah, the, the last part there about the, the statutes of the earth, it's the same word in the Jeremiah 31 passage. It is translated statutes, but ordinances in, in the Jeremiah, but it's, it's the same Hebrew word. And so again, 
everything you laid out there, the, the bear, Orion, these are these are constellations. And over the course of, of one uh, year, they, they appear differently in the sky, but then they kind of reset and, and you see the, see the change. So there's a regularity there. There's a lawfulness to it. And so it's another reference to natural law. And so for me, it was great to learn science and become inspired uh, in my secular humanist public education in America, become inspired about what kind of powerful things humans can do if we just set our mind to it and, and kind of dig in through chemistry and physics and biology and, and all these great innovations that are that are made. You know, these days, the kinds of drugs, you know, they're hoping to get a vaccine for the coronavirus, for example. Uh, it's a really amazing thing that we have machines and kind of the ability to drill down and and find such a thing that, that can help people. Well, that's that's great. And so I, I've always been fascinated with the science, but then, oh, and then so you learn there's there's kind of natural laws, you know, we describe them in the language of mathematics. But when you see that even in the Old Testament, it has a concept of natural law just right there in the text. Job, actually, in the context there, Job 38, this is at the end, and it's God who's speaking in that text. And Job has done some complaining to God, and God is answering him, not on a point by point of Job's complaints, but he's just saying, hey, where were you when I made these constellations? And he asks him a bunch of questions that he can't answer. And so it just points out that, that God made the world, including natural law. All of science that we believe in just becomes amplified to see that he made that, and it points to him. That's great. Yeah, uh, I also wanted, I meant to go into this earlier, but if we could tie in Plato, because we can kind of connect Pythagoras and into Plato, because I've been studying him a bit more, but if you could talk a bit about Plato and his and his work in mathematics. Okay, yeah. So I'm definitely not a, a Plato scholar, but from from my understanding of of Plato, he writes about a thing called called the forms, and the forms are they're not physical, and the world was created after them, and so on on. And when I say world, I'm talking about the, the physical material world. And so the, the material world has a lower status. It's not as good as the forms. And so mm -hmm. in, the, in the physical world, our aspiration ought to be to, to aspire for, for, for the, the divine. And the, these forms are, are the things that we're trying to, to attain to. And so hence his philosophical enterprise is going to be focusing into the abstract and you know the world of the forms. And so that that connects with the classification that I gave at the beginning, talking about categories of beauty, where I, I gave the the abstract and the physical. And so to the extent that we we see a distinction between those and yet they interact with each other, then you know, my, my thinking is is platonic in that regard. Uh, I have a higher view of the the material world, I think, than than 
Plato did because God made it good. But, but nevertheless, Plato ha- permits that kind of thinking. And so it's written in, I, I don't know that Plato wrote this, but I think people wrote it about him, that uh, in the door to his academy, he had a saying at the top that said, let no one ignorant of geometry enter here. It's believed by, by some that Plato comes in the line of the Pythagorean school. And so he was... He wasn't a mathematician per se, but he seemed to be pretty friendly towards mathematics and uh, and, and aware of of mathematics and, and valued its importance, as demonstrated by that quotation. Again, I'm I'm not a Plato Plato expert, so I don't want to say much more than no, that. absolutely, that was great. But uh, but we're talking about a guy who really was able to see. I mean, this is a non Christian non Christian guy, but just seeing that there is this abstract world and there's a physical world and they really connect. And, and not only that, but the physical world points to uh, this abstract world. In his mind, that was because it's an exemplification of these forms that we're aspiring towards. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, one of the reasons I was very excited to have you on is just so many people, they get turned off by math. Um, just going through several years in school. And for the most part, they just um, link math with addition and subtraction and money. But I really didn't start to gain a true appreciation for math until I began to see math and nature and just how everything obeys the, the laws that God put it in nature. And I'm very interested in biology. And so the number five and um, the Fibonacci sequence and those type of mathematics that are in nature just intrigued me. That's what really got me to start getting excited about math and see its true beauty. Um, I know you're not a biologist, but do you have any knowledge about the Fibonacci sequence and phi and those type of laws that are in nature? Yeah, I, I find the Fibonacci sequence to be to be really really amazing, and just for our listeners. People typically start it with with a one, and then the you know. Let me just since I'm doing this, I'll do it my way. Uh, start with a zero, and then and the you add a one, and so you've got a zero one, and then if you just add the two numbers together, that's how the Fibonacci sequence goes. And so zero plus one is one, and so now we have a zero one one. One plus one is two. And then you take the, the previous two numbers, two plus the one is three. Take the previous two numbers, three plus the two is five. Take the previous two numbers, five plus three is eight. And if you just follow that sequence, you now have the Fibonacci sequence. Okay, so seems seems plain enough. Well, it turns out that sequence it just shows up in, in surprising places of the world. You talked biology. So if you do counts of a lot of different flowers, then you take the, the number of petals that they have, they tend to be a Fibonacci number. You'll get fives and eights and thirteens, um, and sometimes much larger than that. If you look at a pine cone and you take the number of whatever you call the little, the little things on, on the pine cone, those tend to be in Fibonacci sequence numbers. And so the, 
the Fibonacci sequence shows up in a variety of natural phenomenon like that. It can be shown in in the reproduction of, I think I think I've seen it with bees and a lot of organisms. If, if you just take the numbers uh, that are going to be alive after successive generations, you get you get Fibonacci numbers, and so so that it's an interesting thing. It, it, it expands though if you take. A, it's a little harder to describe this just verbally, but right. take a square, it, it's one by one uh, unit, and then you add another one by one, then it's, you're going to be too long. And so we've, uh, so we're moving from the one to the two, and then that gives you a three. Okay. And then you, you stick a three on and you, you kind of build the successive rectangle by by just chaining these these rectangles around and and they're going to start to go in a in a circular way if you connect an arc from the corners of of that rectangle that starts to build in the right way then it forms what's called the golden spiral and the golden spiral is the shape of a nautilus shell so we're thinking about again a, a biological phenomenon it also can be shown to match the, the spirals in in phenomenon in outer space, like in galaxies. And so now we've moved from, from biological to a, a, a physics. There's a great leap there from a physics standpoint. And, and that came from just an abstract concept. And so that that's interesting. Now, if you take those those rectangles and you look at the ratio of sides, then the limit of those ratio of the sides goes to a, a special mathematical number called phi that you had mentioned. The limit of a ratio of Fibonacci numbers goes to that, that particular number. And th- th- using that number, it gives the what's called the golden rectangle. And that golden rectangle was believed by the Greeks to be the most perfect uh, form of rectangle, and they used it in their architecture a lot. Some people have written about finding the golden rectangle in in other phenomena of nature as well. Uh, For example, the the human body. Now, to be fair, there's some criticism of that uh, literature. Critics would say that these people are looking for a, a Fibonacci sequence under every bush, so to speak. Mm, yeah. And so there's probably some fair criticism there. But nevertheless, I, I think you will find that this thing does, does show up. And so what we have an example of then is one abstract concept, namely the Fibonacci sequence, and how it shows up, as we mentioned, in disparate parts of biology, uh, in physics. And then humans have an affinity for it. So there's a beauty connection there and are going to use it in architecture. There's a lot of connections. Yes. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Just to see it in a physical form also. Um, you did. Yeah, thanks so much. You did a great job explaining that. Yes. For me, that's um, about it. My final question was going to be, when are you going to write a book? But I think I just saw earlier that you may be working. Are you working on a book? I've got an outline of chapters, a few chapters, 
and in the research done for the missing chapters of of a book called Statistical Apologetics. It's a mm-hmm. book with a colleague of mine who's a professor of statistics at the University of Tennessee by the name of Bill Seaver. And so I, I've I've published a few of the the concepts in articles that we want to use, and then he's published some of his stuff as well. Um, we want to try to pull it together. So that's one. And the basic idea is we want to show how some of the statistics concepts wind up showing up in 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 the area of Christian apologetics. So that's one book I'm working on. Um, as I've been teaching a class called God and Math at Biola, asked me about this subject. I'm, I'm starting to, to brew up uh, a book idea in mind for this one as well, because I do use one book in the class, but it's a little bit more of an introductory book. Uh, it's called Mathematics Through the Eyes of Faith by James Bradley and Russell Howell. Great book. Okay. Uh, really, really good one. But I have my students read a lot of papers in the class by people who have written on, on kind of some specific areas. And so corporately, I've had the privilege of thinking through some concepts uh, with my students that are maybe a little bit more on the esoteric side and kind of some specialized papers that I'd like to, to pull things together and, and put it into a book, uh, be a, available to a little bit more of a popular audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's awesome. I was When I was reading your paper, I really loved the... the um, Uh, I'll edit this out in <laughs> Lady Wisdom, uh, the Proverbs. Oh, the, yeah, I really loved your paper, The Laws of Nature um, in the Natural, ver- um, the natural Versus Spiritual Mind. And I could have read that as a whole book. So I was kind of hoping that in the future you just make a whole book about just that. Oh wow! Okay, well that's a that's a, a pro in in that direction. I would want to include some of that in in my in my God and Math book for sure. Okay, absolutely, it's beautiful. Well, Professor, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Tyler. Absolutely, it's been a privilege. Okay, well, well, may God bless you. <laughs> Thank you.